All right, well, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18? We are working our way through Matthew's Gospel on Sunday morning here at Calvary. And this morning we find ourselves in chapter 18. Let's pick it up in verse 15, where Jesus said, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, in this section, Jesus is laying out the guidelines for dealing with those who, you know, sin against us in some way. And before we look at that, I just want to kind of set this up by, by just drawing your attention to the fact that you know, in America, the way most people deal with those who have wronged them is to simply take them to court and sue them. We're living in a highly litigious society. And over the years, I've kind of kept track of some of these lawsuits I have heard filed because some of them are, you know, pretty out there. Of late, this in the last few years, I've heard that some overweight people have actually sued some of the fast food restaurants uh, for making them fat because they didn't include on the food label a warning that their food is high in calories and will tend to make people chubby, okay? Of course, you've heard years ago how that some people began to sue the tobacco companies for making products that cause cancer, even though since I've been a kid, on cigarette packs, it was required a warning telling you that these things can cause cancer, so be cautious or be aware of that. And people then went ahead and smoked for 40 years, got cancer, and then sued the tobacco companies if somehow they didn't really understand the full ramifications of everything they were doing to themselves over the 40-year period of time. Uh, you remember that one of the classic examples of this was about maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. An older woman was uh, driving through the, uh, the drive-through of her uh, neighborhood McDonald's restaurant and bought a cup of coffee, which she then spilled into her lap and burned herself, which not fun, of course. But she goes ahead and sues McDonald's for not putting a warning on the coffee cup that it's hot and can cause burns. I think she won that case, by the way. I heard a story. These are all true. I heard a story of a landscaper years ago, a professional landscaper out in a job, wanting to trim some bushes, some hedges. So he goes to his, get his uh, electric hedge trimmer, but it's broken. So what does he do? He fires up one of the lawnmowers, picks it up, and begins to use that to hedge the bushes. The thing slips out of his hand, the blade cuts his leg, and he sues, no, no kidding, he sues the lawnmower manufacturer for not putting a warning label on the lawnmower, warning him against the dangers of using it as a hedge trimmer. I think he won too, by the way. I think one of my favorites is, and I've heard this at least twice, where a criminal has broken into a house to rob the people and slipped on a toy or something and hurt themselves, and then sued the homeowner for, you know, for them getting hurt, you know, while they were in their house to rob them. Not only are they breaking the law that way, there should be a law against being clumsy when you're robbing somebody's house. So 
uh, you know, suing the people. And I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, at least one of those I heard, they won that suit as well. More than 20 million lawsuits are filed every year in the United States. And one of the phenomenons in the last decade or so is that many uh, attorneys are not going after churches. For a long time, churches were off limits, all right? But because the, the climate in our country is changing towards Christianity and churches, uh, Christian churches, uh, some lawyers have devoted their entire practices to suing churches. They have realized there's a lot of money to be made in suing churches over various things and for various people and so on. But I think the saddest thing about all of this is that more and more lawsuits happen within the church from Christians suing other Christians. It's not a new thing. Uh, we read about this very thing going on in Corinth. Uh, let me read to you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. He said, When one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask, ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Don't you realize that someday we, we believers will judge the world? And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels someday? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why go to outside judges who are not respected by the church? I am saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide these issues? But instead, one believer sues another right in front of unbelievers. Uh, even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you in the, in the first place. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it, leave it at that? Why not just let yourselves be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do the wrong and cheat even your fellow believers. See, in the Old Testament, God commanded his people Israel to settle their civil disputes among themselves personally or to take it to the elders of the city, the wise men, to run it by them and get a judgment from them or even to take it to a Jewish court or a Jewish judge, but never to settle the matter in front of an unbelieving judge. And so Paul, being Jewish and having that mindset, when he heard what was going on in Corinth, he rebukes these people for running, to, for running to secular courts to settle their disputes. Now, I know some would be thinking right now, well, so what you're saying is when somebody cheats me, I do nothing? All right? I, I don't do it. I forget it? I, I have rights. I have rights. Um, well, yes, you do. I mean, as Americans, we have rights. It's not wrong to demand our rights at certain times. I think I, I demand my right for, to free speech, freedom of religion. I mean, those are things I demand because they are a right that we as Americans have coming to us. But when we became Christians, we kind of gave up our personal rights. When we gave our hearts to Jesus Christ, he became our master. We became his bond slaves. And there are times when he will command us to go to somebody and ask for forgiveness from them. And when in reality, they're the ones who have offended us. But then we didn't handle it so well. Hard feelings developed. And the Lord lays it on our hearts. You need to go to that person. But Lord, I didn't do anything wrong. They were the ones that started it. And the Lord Jesus says, you belong to me. You're my servant. I didn't do anything wrong. And I went to the cross. Can't you die to self and go to the cross and, you know, make amends with that person? It doesn't matter who started it. It's who's going to finish it. Who's going to reconcile this whole thing? 
you know, 15 years ago, I was cheated out of an inheritance by some members of my family who claimed to be Christians. And we could have really used that money back then. We weren't, you know, things were really tight. And uh, it was a nice sum of money. And I was pretty upset about it at the time and even thought about suing them and so on. But uh, the Lord kept me from doing it. And I'm glad he did because God really showed me that my witness is far more important to me than any money could ever be. I forgave them. And you know, God took care of us. He always does. In fact, I'm convinced a lot of times these things are tests to see what level of maturity we're at. Are we going to fight for our rights? Ooh, you know, they got to come and I'm going to take them to court. Or are we going to simply say, Lord, I'll leave it in your hands. I'm a Christian. The money is not that important to me. You'll take care of us. You always do. See, for Paul, the greater issue wasn't who was right, who was wrong, who's going to get justice. Paul was not an attorney. He was an apostle. He was a leader in the church. And as a leader in the church, what was first and foremost on his heart was that the church of Jesus Christ be a light in this dark world. That the church would manifest the character of Christ, the love of Christ to this world. And that means Christians don't sue each other. It means we take it, we def allow ourselves at times to be defrauded. But today, in America, we're so consumed with our rights that nothing else matters. Listen to me. You can be right without being righteous. You can be right without being righteous. And a lot of Christians might be right, but then they fill up the court dockets with cases against each other, all the time taking place before unbelieving judges. The world just loves it when we Christians fight among ourselves. They just love it. Satan just, he laughs, his, he stirs us up. And then when he gets us going against each other, he calls the media and he makes sure that everyone Facebook knows and then YouTube has got stuff on there and uh, because this is all he's doing. He wants us to divide and conquer. Today I've heard of Christians who are actually suing their churches to get all their offerings back. <laughs> Don't get any ideas. <laughs> Why? Because the pastor at one point said something from the pulpit that offended them. Now, look, mind you, not something unbiblical, something that offended them. Or I've heard other Christians are, have sued uh, a pastor or some leaders in, in a particular church because they went to a pastor, got some advice, counsel, applied it. It didn't work out the way they had hoped, and so now they're suing the church. Look, in the eyes of God, my witness and His glory are far more important than any personal compensation I can get from suing another Christian. If a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ has wronged us in any way, our response should be to forgive them and to leave the outcome with God. He may compensate us or he may not. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. And whatever he chooses in his sovereign will, we need to accept whatever he decides to do. And we need to move on. Now, I have to balance this because some Christians read what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, and they the way they read it is that, that God is forbidding us as Christians to ever go to court and sue anyone at any time for any reason. That isn't true. In fact, it even isn't true that the Bible forbids us from suing another Christian. Listen to what Paul said again. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 7. He said, why not just accept? Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? 
He didn't say, I command you in the name of the Lord. You are never to go to court against each other. There are some times, guys, when going to court against another Christian might have to be. When I taught this study in 1 Corinthians several years ago, I had a gentleman come up afterwards and tell me a story. That's why I put this little caveat in there. Because he said, you know, I know what you're saying, but I know a couple who are Christians who got divorced. And it was very bitter. And now she was trying to punish him by not letting him see the kids. So he had to take her to court to get his rights to see his own children. And I said, you know what, you're right. There are times when it is legitimate. But Paul is saying the higher ground would be to, you know, he says, why don't you just accept the wrongdoing? You know, why don't you just rather allow yourself to be cheated? But they're wrong. Of course they're wrong. The bigger issue is, are we going to represent Christ? Are we going to represent Jesus in the way he lived his life? Remember now, Paul was not against all legal action. On several occasions in the book of Acts, he appealed to Rome on behalf of his rights as a Roman citizen. But again, for the sake of our witness and our personal growth, because that's what it is. Again, I think a lot of this stuff is God just testing us. We think we're so mature. God says, really? All right, let's see how you do. Oh, I didn't do so well, Lord. That's right. I know your heart. I know what's going on. But until you see there's a long way to go yet, get on your face and seek me for the strength to be like my son. Well, I can't work with you then if you think you've arrived. Okay. So when it comes to our witness, personal growth in the Lord, uh, when it's a personal matter, it's better to accept the wrong and leave it with the Lord than to demand our rights and take that person to court. Now, having said that, when someone wrongs you, listen to me, it is God's will that you give them an opportunity to make it right because it will affect their relationship with the Lord. You see, God knows what is going on. I mean, I am amazed at how people can do something wrong to somebody and then spin it so that they become the victim. I mean, it's just shocking to me the mindset of so many today that they can do evil to another and then spin it as, as if they were the victim. But you're not fooling God. They're not, they're not fooling the Lord. God knows what went on. And if it's a Christian who, who wrongs another Christian, God knows that too. God knows what's, what has gone on. And it will affect their fellowship with Him. It will break their fellowship with Him until they get it right with Him. With Him because... Ultimately, all sins are against God himself. David told us this in Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you and you alone I have sinned and committed this great evil in your eyes. And that's when he sinned with Bathsheba, another man's wife, and had Uriah, her husband, killed. Yet David recognized, yes, I wronged Uriah. Yes, I wronged Bathsheba. But God, I sinned against you. All sin is ultimately against the holy God. And you then, because they have offended you, because they have done something God has forbidden, you then as the offended person, the person they have wronged, listen to me now, you then become very important in the plan of God to bring these people to repentance and restoration. You become God's first on his list, we might say, of the things and people he will use to bring them to a place of brokenness, repentance, and restoration. And that's really where we pick it up this morning in our text. In Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, Jesus lays out the instructions or the guidelines 
for dealing with someone who has sinned against us. Now, I have to be very careful here. You see the word sin there in verse 15? If someone has sinned against you or sins against you, that's a Greek word that literally means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. And it deals with something that violates what God has commanded. Now, I need to make that point because many people today are hypersensitive and are offended by almost anything. I was telling first service, uh, years ago I slipped and referred to a woman that had been coming, there was a couple actually, had been coming to the church for a few weeks. I, I slipped, didn't know them that well yet, and you know, I'm bouncing around saying hi to people, and sometimes I'm thinking, I'm just shooting highs out, you know, and I went up to her and shook her hand and said, uh, hi Mrs. George, that was her husband's first name, instead of calling her Mrs. Jones, but she got so offended that she left the church, <laughs> dragging poor George behind her. Another time, I had a young woman come up to me, and she was very connected to her animals. Her pets were very important to her. Not, nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, people love their pets. But she asked me if I thought that her pets would be with her in heaven someday. Now, that's a slippery slope. I don't like to answer questions like that. It's just fraught with danger. And, but I try to be honest, of course, you know. And so I said to her, in all honesty, I said, well... I hate to break it to you, but I don't think so. I mean, you get into heaven, you have to be born of the Spirit, okay? I mean, an animal has a body and a consciousness, a soul. They're alive. But we were alive with a body and a soul before we accepted Christ. And as we accepted Him, we, we were born of the Spirit. And that's what lives with forever with God in heaven. Of course, the body is then, when we're born of the Spirit, is going to be eventually uh, glorified. And animals, I see none of that in the, in the Scripture with regard to pets, that... They're going to someday inherit a spirit and a new glorified body. I, I just don't see that. So no, I don't think our pets are going to be in heaven. Well, she got very offended by that, and she also left the church. Um, so when Jesus talks about how to deal with those who sin against us, he's referring to those who wrong us by violating something God has commanded. In other words, they lied to us or about us or they stole something from us, etc., the guidelines that Jesus lays out for dealing with this kind of thing are simple and straightforward. In fact, in verses 15 to 20, it breaks down this way. Uh, in verses 15 to 17, you have the process for working through conflict or when somebody sins against you. You have the process. Then you have the principle in verse 18. And finally, the promise in verses 19 to 20. Now, this morning, we're only going to spend our time dealing with the first one, the process, because that's really the heart of it, okay? And where we all live, by the way, okay? Because conflict is inevitable, guys. Okay, if anybody tells you that conflict can be avoided, uh, if you just live a right life, or conflict is inevitable. And not all conflict comes because somebody has sinned against you. You could have two passionate people for the Lord, love the Lord. Leaders will say in the church, they both have different ideas about how to do the work of God. They butt heads, iron sharpens iron, and there's conflict. Nobody's really in the wrong. I mean, nobody's the bad guy. But when we work together, there's going to be conflict. Conflict in marriage, conflict at work. And so it's important that we understand the process of dealing with it. Although in this section, he is laying out the guidelines for resolving conflict uh, in the church context, Okay. So the process, verses 15 to 17. First of all, you confront them one-on-one, -on -one, Jesus said, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he hears you, you have gained your brother. And guys, that's the whole purpose of this process. Reconciliation. All right? Reconciliation. You go to him alone or her alone. They've offended you. They've sinned against you in some way. You go to them, and if you can work it out, hey, you've achieved what God wants. There's reconciliation. You've gained your brother or sister. Notice Jesus did not say, now here's what you do. Somebody sins against you. You go around the church. You talk them down. Okay? You go ahead and make sure everybody knows what they did to you. All right? Gather people. No. He didn't say that, obviously. He said to go to them personally and try to work it out between you and them alone. And I believe that the Lord wants us to do this as quickly as possible. Turn to Ephesians 4. The context in Ephesians 4 is Paul is dealing with the same thing. People that sin against us in the church context. And he said in Ephesians 4 verse 26, he said, Be angry and do not sin. Now here's the thing, okay? Be angry, but do not sin. Paul understands we're not robots. When somebody says something against you, lies about you, or lies to you, or, or cheats you in some way, we're not robots. We don't say, oh, well, praise the Lord. We get angry, don't we? We're human beings. Paul says, you can get angry, but don't sin. Don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. See, Paul is saying, look, conflict is inevitable. Sometimes people hurt us or they wrong us. That's just a fact of life in any context where you have people that work together and, and worship together in the church and so on. And when somebody wrongs you, you know, again, we're not robots. You can be angry, but don't let it lead to sin. But go to them and work it out quickly. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Why? Because the longer you let this thing go, the more it festers. Doesn't it eat at your gut? The more it creates anger, resentment, bitterness. Paul talk, or The writer of the Hebrews, which I believe was Paul, talked about a root of bitterness. If you let the root of bitterness grab hold in your heart, it will produce all kinds of poison fruits. It will just poison your walk with God. That's why it should be dealt with quickly. Because Satan wants the opportunity to use it to infect other people. Because that's what happens. You know, people that love us in the church hear our side of the story, and they form, you know, uh, our team. And then people that love the other person, they hear their side of the story, they run behind them to support them. And pretty soon now, the church is at odds with each other. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But the devil pushes the buttons, the devil stirs up the conflict, and if we then give into it and don't deal with it properly, oh my goodness, does he love that. He absolutely loves it, because he loves to show the world how Christians don't really get along. And so... Paul says, and no doubt Jesus had this in mind, look, when somebody wrongs you, go to them personally, try to work it out quickly. Now, remember this, that working things out with those who have wronged you, for the most part, is going to depend on your attitude. And this is going to manifest, and this is why I believe God uses this kind of thing. It's going to demonstrate how mature you are in the Lord or how carnal you are in the Lord. If you go to them with the attitude, listen, that they wronged you, they hurt you, how dare they do that to you? Well, you're going to go to them then with feelings of hurt and resentment. And let's be honest, if that's your attitude, you're all fired up because you're hurt, you're upset, you know, they've wronged you, how dare they do this to me, and so on. Well, even if they do apologize, if it isn't accompanied by a good amount of 
of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth on their part, you know, as they fall to the ground and grab you around the ankles and beg for forgiveness and grovel in the dirt for a while. Uh, if they don't do that, even their apology won't be accepted. And sometimes you can even grovel and your apology, if you've wronged somebody, still won't be accepted. Several years ago, we had a couple come to the church. They were not a young couple, middle-aged couple. And they had been coming for a while, so I thought we were pretty good, you know. And it just so happened that this one week, as the week began, I knew Friday I was leaving for California for a pastor's conference. And everything hit. I broke a tooth on, like, Tuesday. Had to rush into the dentist and get emergency, you know. Uh, they fixed it, you know. And uh, I think something happened with the car and... That week, this, this gentleman, his mother died and asked me if I would do the eulogy on Thursday evening. I thought, okay, Thursday, that's fine. Thursday evening, it's, I, I'm leaving Friday morning, no problem. Thursday morning, I get up and my hot water heater has died all over the utility room, front room. All, the water's everywhere. It took me two hours to mop everything up and get it, you know. And so I had to shut the water off, of course. Now there's no water in the house. This has got to be fixed before I leave tomorrow morning, the next day, right? So I called somebody in the church. One of the guys ran out. We unhooked the other, the broken water heater, dragged it out into the garage, you know, went to Home Depot, I think, and picked up a new one. Spent uh, really all day into the evening fixing it. So I knew I wasn't going to be able to make the, the, the funeral service for his mom. I really wanted to be there. But that's why I have assistant pastors. So I called one of my assistant pastors. He ran right over, did the whole service, but that wasn't good enough. It should have been me. And, you know, I knew I let them down, although I didn't intend to, I didn't want to, you know, just I could not leave my house. I had to get this done. And we didn't leave them in a lurch. We had a pastor go over and do the service. But I knew they were upset, got back to me. So while I'm in California, I called, and I am apologizing profusely to the gentleman for not being there for him. I know losing his mom, it was a big deal. I wanted to be there, and I apologized. I explained the situation again. Well, they left the church over that. And it came, I came to find out through somebody else who had talked to the lady, to his wife, that while I was talking to him apologizing, she was on the extension. And she was literally timing the length of my apology. Apparently, I didn't grovel in the dirt long enough for her to make it a sincere apology. So what are you going to do with that? What, what do you do? You know? You know, Paul said, as much as is possible and depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes you bend over backwards and people are not going to live peaceably. It, they're going to get offended and no matter what you do or say, that's it, write you off. Well, we can't help that. We can only do what we can do. But I want you to see this, though, because this is very important. This is really the heart of what I want to say on this matter here. The proper attitude in this process that Jesus lays out in verses 15 to 17 of reconciling with somebody who has sinned against you. The proper attitude in this process should be, listen, for their welfare, not for healing your hurt feelings. Now, I know it's not easy, but as hard as it is, you can't make your feelings the driving factor in wanting to see this reconciled. They cannot be your focus in working towards reconciliation. Remember that first and foremost, as we said earlier, they have sinned against God by lying to you or about you or cheating you in some way. And that has broken their fellowship with God. 
That is a serious thing. And as their brother or sister in Christ, you should want to help them get right with God. That should be the motivation. And I can't underscore this enough. Our main concern should be that their relationship with God is all that it can be so that they are blessed and used by God as much as possible. That's what true Christian love is all about. Being a blessing to others even when they hurt us. Wasn't that the heart of Jesus? As he was hanging from the cross, he was asking his father to forgive those who put him there. And why was he there? Because he loved us so much. He was going to the cross to die for our sins. The very people that put him there, oh, by the way, it wasn't just the Jews and the Romans. Every one of us who would ever live put him on that cross because it was his love that allowed him to be nailed to that cross because of our sin. Without the shedding of his blood, we could have no fellowship or reconciliation with God. We would be hopelessly then bound toward hell without any hope of ever going to heaven. See, his love was the motivating, fa motivating factor. His love for the people to see them get right with God so that they could be blessed by God, have eternal life in heaven with him forever. That was the motivation. His feelings were, you know, were immaterial. His feelings were unimportant to him. It was their welfare why he went to the cross, our welfare. So first of all, you confront them one-on-one, -on -one, verse 15. If that doesn't work, then take with you one or two more, verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying if they won't listen to you when you go to them alone, well, it's war. Start, you know, gathering your troops to go against them by letting everyone know what they did to you and getting people on your side and so on. That's what happens in a lot of churches when these things are not dealt with properly. But Jesus, of course, is not saying that. When he said, you know, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses a thing may be established, the Lord was drawing their attention back to what the law of God had specified in dealing with a matter in civil court. You never convict somebody based on the testimony of one person. They could lie. You have to have corroborating testimony. Uh, one or two more. And that comes out of Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, where it says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And what the Lord is simply saying when he's, when he, you know, he's, he's talking about a process we work through. You go to them, first of all, one and one. That's informal. That's an informal thing. And what the Lord Jesus Christ here is doing, he's saying, look, if they won't listen to you personally, then the process moves up a notch. It goes from an informal meeting of two people, then to a formal meeting of one or two more. And let me say this to you. If this is going to be done properly, you've got to take with you spiritually mature people whose purpose for going with you is not, listen, to side with you against them. It's always easy to find people who will side with us. And you think by taking them with you to go to this person, what you're really doing is, the, the, the motivation oftentimes is, I'm going to get more people to blast them with. Because they're going to see they hurt me. See, what Jesus is saying is, look, the goal here is to gain your brother or your sister reconciliation is the goal not retribution not revenge and so take with you one or two three more spirit-filled mature believers who are going to go with you not to take your side but simply to help this person once again get right with god 
Because that's our main concern. If we love people, we're going to want to see them get right with the Lord. Get back into fellowship with the Lord. Now, if that doesn't work, the Lord lays out a third step, verse 17, the beginning of the verse. Bring it to the church. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now, some believe that what the Lord is saying here is that at this point, you take it to the leadership of the church. Get the pastors involved. I think at very least it, it, it means that. Others say no, it means to take the matter to the whole congregation. Because this conflict is like leaven. It's going to permeate through the whole church, cause division, discord, and that's going to affect the whole church, just like we just got done saying. This they believe, if you then take it to the whole church. Now, let me say this. If you take it to the whole church, it will kind of ratchet up the pressure on the person. Hopefully they'll repent, get right with God. Let me say this to you today. We have to be very careful with this because churches have tried to do the right thing today, and they've tried to do this, take it to the church, and they get sued by the person because you're telling everybody my personal stuff. So it's very hard today to live as a biblical Christian. I'm not saying we shouldn't try. I'm just saying it's very hard today, very difficult. I believe both ways are right, actually. I think you should take it to the leadership first, get them involved, let them determine if it's something that should be shared with the church. When I say share with the church, I'm not going to bring it on a Sunday morning. I'm going to share with the prayer meeting. I'm going to share with maybe the Wednesday night crowd because there are people who come on Wednesday night are, are those who are not really newcomers to our church. They're more uh, committed core members. I'm going to take it to people I trust that will pray, but we take it to the church at one point because it will affect the church. Now, if all that doesn't work, then Jesus tells us there's only one thing left to do. Put them out of the church. At the end of verse 17, we read, But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. <gasps> How unloving. But look, Jesus Christ said this, okay? And there's nobody more loving than him. Now, this is God's version of tough love. Church discipline is not a vengeful act, it's a loving one. It's a loving act. As when a parent disciplines their child. It's all designed to get the child to get right, get right with the family, get right with the parents, obey the rules of the family, and so on. Church discipline is not vengeful, it's loving if it's done right. Some of you know who Gail Irwin is. Gail is a, is a great guy, man of God. He uh, pastored for many years himself. And now as a conference speaker, he's been out to our church several times and to men's retreats we've had. And he's a great guy. And Gail said there are three words associated with church discipline. Restore, remove, reconcile. He said you restore the sinner when they repent. You remove the person from the fellowship that causes division because they're the most dangerous to the health of the church. Even as the writer to the, uh, in the Proverbs said in chapter 6, that God hates one who sows discord among brethren. And number three, you reconcile with those you're having conflict with. That's the right way to do it. Gail said, our problem is today that we do everything backwards in the church. We restore the person that causes divisions. We remove the sinner without trying to help them repent. And we never reconcile with the person who's giving us trouble. Again, the purpose of church discipline is always restoration, not retribution. Chastening, which is discipline, is always corrective, not punitive. However, today, disfellowshipping somebody from the church doesn't carry with it the same impact it did in Paul's day or in the Old Testament period when you only had one synagogue in a town. 
And if somebody in that synagogue, a Jew, was involved in some sinful thing and they wouldn't repent, they would put the person out of the synagogue. You only had one synagogue. And that became the center of the Jewish life of that city or that village. You were basically ostracized from the entire Jewish community. That's a heavy price to pay and a great motivation to get you right. Well, the church picked up on that. Of course, in many small towns, there was only one church. In the bigger towns and cities, they had one church, but it was spread out over the city because they met in homes. And if a person was living in sin, we'll say, or, or sinned against another Christian and wouldn't get it right, and they went through this process and so on, they still wouldn't repent, then they put them out of the church. They disfellowshiped them. And the idea was they wanted to put pressure on them to get right with God. Why? Because first of all, it was beneficial for them to get right with God because then God could bless them and use them like he wanted to. Secondly, it was good for the health of the body because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If we tolerate sin in the body, it's going to spread and people are going to get a lax attitude towards sin like we see in many churches today. And therefore, it's going to spread and just going to wind up killing that body. A healthy body purges itself. I'm speaking physically now. A healthy body purges itself of the poisons that come inside of it or the disease. If a body is too weak to purge itself of the disease that comes inside of it, it will eventually grow weak and die. If a church or the body of Christ in the local area is too weak to purge itself of the false doctrine or of the uh, disease of sin, if they tolerate it, it's going to spread and kill the whole body. There's a lot of churches that are still meeting, but they're dead because they have taken a very lax, tolerant view of sin, all in the name of God's love, by the way. That's the problem today. We as Christians, we don't exercise tough love. We exercise syrupy emotionalism and call it God's love. But today, you know, you try to exercise some church discipline, and um, it's no big deal because they just walk down the street a couple blocks and join another church. I mean, there's churches everywhere, isn't there? And, you know, in a two, three weeks, a month, they're back in ministry, they're teaching a small group, or they're in the worship team or something like that. We have seen this. In fact, years ago, and this is going back into the 80s, we had a worship leader. He was a married man, and we had another gal in the church. He was also married. And their marriages weren't doing that well, and somehow they began to hook up, and they fell into adultery. But we talked with them, tried to reason with them. Finally, we had to disfellowship, and they wouldn't repent, wouldn't break it off. Now, I want you to understand something. In 32 years of ministry, we've probably disfellowshipped about six or seven people. So it's not that we're running around trying to cut people off the church first time they do something wrong. We're not, that's not what we're going to do. We're, we love these folks, but we love the whole body too. And so we had to disfellowship them. And I found out that immediately they went down the street to another rather large church in the area and began to fellowship there and and eventually got into worship, uh, ministry, worship team, and so on. But, but as soon as I heard they had gone down the road and were now a member of, of, of this other church, I picked up the phone and I called that church. I said, can I speak to one of the elders? And a gal gets on the phone. And I said to her, I said, look, I want you to understand, there's a couple coming to your church that are living in sin. They're, they're, they're involved in adultery with each other. I said, we tried to deal with it. They wouldn't repent. And so we had to disfellowship them, hoping they would get right with God, but instead they've gone down to your church. And you know what? As Paul said, you know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? Sin in the camp, Joshua, right? Uh, it's going to affect what God's going to be able to do through the church. Look, we just want to draw it to your attention so that you can deal with it. And this gal did everything, bending over backwards to excuse this couple. Well, you know what? 
maybe God's led them here to be loved on, and we're going to love on them. I thought to myself, like, we're not loving them because we disfellowship them. You know, it's very difficult to exercise church discipline today. A lot of churches don't even do it anymore. Primarily, a lot of churches just don't want to alienate anybody. They don't want to drive anybody out. They want those funds coming in. A lot of times the people who are involved in the worst sins are the biggest givers. Not only are they not dealt with, they're rewarded with places of leadership and in the church. But here's the thing, okay, and I'll, we'll bring it so close, okay? The proper way for the church to handle this when we have to put somebody out of the church, disfellowship them for a time, hoping they'll repent. But then what happens is, I hear that there are people in our church who are still fellowshipping with this person. They're inviting them over for dinner, you know, and fellowship with them. And I'll call them and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, I just can't. I just, I'd, be, I'd feel terrible if I didn't associate with them. So what you're saying is your feelings are more important than their welfare. Because that's what's going on. We get soft, syrupy, sentimental with our love. We get soft on sin. And when God wants to exercise a little tough love to break them and bring them back to him, we jump in there and we lavish on them all this syrupy kind of love because that's in our mind what Christian love is all about. Loving the rebel instead of holding them accountable to repent and get right with God and stop being a rebel. All right, to review quickly. If we are cheated or wronged by another Christian, we should go to him or her first, try to reason with them alone. If that doesn't work, we take two or three or one, two or three other Christians with us, and I'm talking about mature, neutral, okay, neutral Christians, and again try to reason with them because we want to see them get right with God. If that doesn't work, you take it to the leadership and let them decide if it needs to go to the whole church. And when I say go to the whole church, I won't announce something like that on a Sunday morning. We have too many visitors, new Christians, unbelievers checking us out. Well, I'm gonna, if I take it to the church, I'm going to take it to the, the prayer meetings. I'm going to take it to Wednesday night probably because that's the core. Because I know that those folks are more mature and will pray. I want this to be fodder for the gossip mill. I, I want this to be shared with the church who is mature and sincere. We won't use it against them and so on. But after all that uh, doesn't work, uh, if he still refuses to repent and do the right thing, then the church needs to exercise tough love. Tough love. Because if we love them, we're going to want to see them get right with God, even if it takes some tough love. Now, if through all of this they refuse to repent and we disfellowship with we disfellowship them. What is your part? The one who was wrong, what are you to do? Well, as we said earlier, you, you're to just accept the wrongdoing, suffer the loss, forgive him or her, and leave it in the hands of God. Not take it to court. I mean, if at all possible, and I don't think there's probably a whole bunch of cases that would have to go to court, small percentage. A lot of times it's just, you know, people wanting to get their feelings fixed or they're hurt they want to get back at them but um, for the most part we should just say you know what what you did was wrong you won't say you're sorry you won't make it right that's okay I'm going to leave it with God I'm going to love you I'm going to pray for you because I do want to see you reconciled I mean it's my whole I want to see you your walk with God be what it should be 
That's the high ground. That's the mature ground. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, an attorney friend of mine has said that over the years, he has counseled dozens of Christians to drop lawsuits against each other. In some 90% of the cases, he has, been, he has been successful, and he reports that without exception, those believers have been blessed. Also, without exception, those who insisted on resolving their disputes in court became bitter and resentful whether they won or lost their cases. He goes on to say, if they went to court, they always lost spiritually, end quote. Because God blesses humility. God blesses humility. Humility is the core characteristic of, of the Christian life, where, which allows all the fruit of the Spirit to grow in our lives. Humility, as we said a few weeks ago, is the soil that allows all the fruit of the Spirit to grow in our lives. Pride is the evil soil, or the call it an evil weed, that chokes out the fruit of the Spirit. Now, this chapter began with a teaching on humility, with regard to being a servant, right? And then he brings in, and I believe, into the whole issue of resolving conflict. He's going to also then, at the, at the end of this chapter, verses 21 to the end of the chapter, he's going to talk about forgiveness. Because, look, if people don't reconcile with you, if they refuse to repent, you're still to forgive them. Even as Jesus did from the cross. And that's going to take humility. All right, Proud people cannot let go of things when people have hurt them. They want to retaliate. They want to get revenge. Humility is the overarching principle of the whole chapter. Now, next week we'll continue looking at this, maybe even getting into that last section on forgiveness. But this is a very important section, one that we need to really take to heart. Again, conflict is something that we are going to just have to deal with because that's just a part of human nature as we relate to one another especially in the church of Jesus Christ. But um, there's a way to deal with it when it comes, and especially when it comes to others who have sinned against us. So we'll continue this, uh, this uh, section next time. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and your grace, your kindness toward us, Lord. Lord Jesus, you were the epitome of somebody who put his feelings aside to die for those who had wronged you, every sin is a sin against you, Lord. Yet you put your feelings aside and you came down and went to the cross because our welfare was uppermost in your mind, not your feelings. And Lord, forgive us because we often let our feelings drive everything and feelings rooted in our pride. Forgive us, Lord. It's not about us. We want to make it about, yes, but they hurt me. Well, okay, they hurt Jesus. But Lord, give us grace to act like you. As Peter said, when others revile us, and persecute us, even say evil things against us, like you, Lord Jesus, kept your mouth quiet. You were like a sheep before its shears. You were silent. Give us grace to be like you. We just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.